What's up, people? Welcome to episode 17 of the Next Bite podcast. In today's show, we're going to be talking about printing tissue during surgery, robots that can brush your hair, and the way to make smaller and cheaper batteries. I'm Daniel. And I'm Forbode. And this is the Next Bite podcast. Every week, we explore interesting and impactful tech and engineering content from Weevolver.com and deliver it to you in bite-sized episodes that are easy to understand, regardless of your background. All right, folks, let's hit it off with our first article, which is about bioprinting tissue during surgery. And this is coming out of Penn State University, Dr. Ibrahim Osbalat. Um, he's a professor of engineering science and mechanics. And basically what he's done is found a method to 3D print to fix traumatic injuries to the face and head. He prints the tissue in the place. So if there's a hole in your face or skull, it's actually really, really difficult right now to solve that issue in surgery. So it requires a lot of materials. It actually requires donor bone. So it has to be taken either from a, like a living donor or from a cadaver. They need to take bone and soft tissue, cut it to the right shape, make sure that it fits, and then put it back in that hole in your face or skull. And the th- reason why it's especially complicated on your face is because like that's your moneymaker. You want your face to be aesthetically pleasing. Can't mess this you up. You can't easily cover it up. Yeah, you, you don't want to mess up this beautiful face. Yeah. So the results have to be aesthetically pleasing. So what Professor Osbalat's team looked at is can we 3D print in place instead of having to cut the bone and cut all these materials, just print in the hole and fix it right there where it is. All right. So there was, uh, what was this episode four now? I think like yeah. three, three, over three months ago, we kind of yeah. talked about this and I think it was out of Carnegie Mellon. They had developed a way to 3d print organic material, but it had to be in a hydrogel because if it wasn't, it would collapse. Have, have they gotten around this or does it suffer yeah, from well, the same issue? There, There's two parts to this printing. Okay. The first part is printing the bone. And they can actually 3D print hard tissue. So you you don't have to suspend it in a gel or anything like that. So okay. the hard tissue, they print the bone, it works fine. Um, this same issue you're talking about, though, where when they're printing the soft tissue, it's kind of liquidy and they want to make sure that it holds the geometry that they want. What they do is they've basically been printing thin layers of it in a mist. They spray a thin mist over it, and then they spray another chemical called a crosslinker that allows those polymers to cure in place. Okay. So that makes sense. every few layers, they're curing them. Um, so they don't need this hydrogel support like you were talking about with the Carnegie Mellon research. Once it cures, does it turn into like a hard object, like like hard tissue or... No, it's, it stays gelatinous. Okay. I mean, if you look at the research, I was looking at some photos of it. It basically looks like jello. Okay. Um, and so it kind of makes this jello type material that stays where it's supposed to, has the geometry it's supposed to, and it stays in place. So th- does but, the jello and the hard tissue underneath it that were printed, is that the new tissue now? Well, let me walk you through like the, okay. the full process of what happens, and I think that'll explain it. So first, say I've got an injury or I've had surgery or whatever, that I have a hole in my skull. Um, say I just got a link from Neuralink installed, and I decide I don't want it. So how do we repair this hole in my head? Um, the first thing they do is they 
3D scan it. So they figure out where the bone is supposed to be, where the skin is supposed to be, mm-hmm. what's missing, and what's the shape of this thing they're going to print. Okay. So then they go in, they print the hard tissue, which is the bone. Okay. And the thing that they're printing, that filament, is actually, it contains collagen, chitosan, and stem cells, basically all the precursor materials that are necessary for bone to grow there. And it's kind of a scaffolding. So then they do a 3D scan again, and they say, okay, so we've got the bone in place. How much soft tissue do we need to print? And by soft tissue, they're basically replicating where the skin should be. And then they go in and they inject, they spray these inks and they cure it in place. The final product, they've got this 3D printed bone with kind of a gelatinous material on top that fully plugs the hole that was in your head. All right. So correct me if I'm wrong. The hard tissue 3D print is going to give a scaffold for the actual bone to grow through, right? Yeah. And then you have the jelly stuff on top and, and that's like, it has all the mixtures required to actually have tissue regenerate with it. Is that correct? Exactly. So okay. they're not they're not printing bone and they're not printing skin. But what they are doing is providing some structural support and really providing the, the important part is providing the cell tissue, all the extra nutrients, all the proteins, all the enzymes that are necessary for the healing to happen there in an efficient manner. An efficient manner. So the analogy I'd like to liken to is it's like planting a seed in some soil that's I like that. climate controlled environment with all the light, all the water that's needed, all the air, all the nutrients. It's making it as easy as possible for the body to heal. And the results of it show. So in the first 10 days, the skin had completely healed over about 80% of the uh, 80% of the mice that they tested. It okay. In. And within four weeks, all the skin on every single mouse that they tested, they tested 50 of them, hundred percent of those soft tissues had completely healed. So that, Jelly thing wasn't there anymore. That's there impressive. wasn't an open wound. The skin had completely healed in four weeks. And I can imagine like having a hole, um, you know, with like this gelatinous tissue there that it fully heals within four weeks is pretty insane. Yeah. Um, talking about the bone as well, within six weeks, 80% of them had completely closed as well. So that level of bone growth, that level of skin growth is only possible because of they're basically providing perfect conditions for the body to heal in that place. Now, I, I guess a different application of this is like maybe even burn victims, not for the heart tissue, but for the soft tissue. If, if you could lay the groundwork for the tissue to heal, like in the best conditions possible, that this could be a great application of that too, right? Exactly. It, it seals up the wound well. Mm-hmm. Um, protects it from outside environment, but it also gives every single thing that they need, um, they meaning the cells in the body, to heal and to regrow in that spot. I think it's a huge step forward, and I'm excited to see this being applied in you know multiple realms of healthcare, not just in you know the face and skull surgery area, even though that's obviously and ridiculously important. You said it; they've only tested on mice now, right? Yeah, only only mice so far. Um, and the results basically are comparable, if not better than current methods with using bone grafts and using skin grafts. So, um, I think it looks promising. I'd be excited to see this applied in clinical applications and trials moving forward. Especially if one of us gets a, you know, an injury on our faces, we we can't give this up. Not, not for Instagram. You know, we got to make those. Yeah, especially yours, man. Yeah, I know. Got to keep it pretty. (laughs) All right. Um. Speaking of technology and healthcare, let's transition into our next topic now. We're going to be talking about a robot that is going to be brushing your hair. And I know, I know it sounds a little weird, 
but this is a research coming out of MIT and Harvard. It was a joint effort. And the reason they did this is because nurses actually spend a lot of their time taking care of patients, right? Their personal health. And, you know, personal hygiene, like brushing your hair, is actually a part of that. Turns out they're actually spending like 18 to 40% of their time doing this kind of work. And, you know, if anything, again, this past year has shown us a lot about the world, one being how essential nurses are and the work that they do. So if you can alleviate some of their workloads so that they can focus on more pressing matters, it would be great. So that's the problem they want to address here. It was cool for me to actually find out that Panasonic had done similar work back in 2011. They created a robot that could wash your hair and blow dry it, and it was intended for the elderly, just allowing them to take care of themselves in their own homes. So it's, it's not too far out of the realm of reality. But hair is very difficult to like analyze and manipulate. I, I um, actually think about a coworker I used to work with when I was at Formlabs. Shane Whiten, he's got an awesome YouTube channel he called does. Stuff Made Here. I he's love like his videos. Probably one of the best engineering YouTubers that I can watch now. So go check him out. But he made two versions of a robot, mm-hmm. like multi-axis of freedom, robotic arm that could cut hair. And he talked about how complicated it was, like all the dynamics of hair, because it's actually just like millions and millions of fibers in one place. It's not... Um, not like cutting through a gel or a material that's stiff. It's actually a ton of fibers. And he had a lot of challenges making this robot to cut hair. So I, I imagine they encountered a lot of these same issues here trying to brush it. You would be absolutely right because it's different lengths of hair, different, you know, density. And like my hair is curly and wavy and your hair is completely straight. So you have to make a system that can analyze and come up with a solution that meets that hairstyle's needs, right? Yeah, every head of hair is different. Exactly. Every head of hair is different. So that that's one of the things that they had to overcome. And they made a mathematical algorithm that analyzes bundles of small fibers and it comes up with a way on how to best manipulate it. What's cool about this is that even if they never really go commercial with this idea, this can be used in industry, like in the textile industry. So it like... Their research has so much merit that it's not just for the healthcare sector. It can be so applied to different things as well. It's intended for hair combing, mm-hmm. you know, hair fibers. But anywhere where you're looking at manipulating tons of fibers, this same algorithm exactly. can be reapplied there. That's pretty interesting. 100% right. And so you mentioned like different hair types. Yours is curly. Mine is straight. How would this algorithm compare like how to brush your hair versus mine? So it... Again, it has the algorithm tells it like how to analyze the situation and the brush that it uses has sensors giving it feedback when it makes contact. These are four sensors. Okay, so it knows how hard it's brushing exactly. your hair. Exactly. It knows how hard it's brushing, it's brushing your hair. So it knows that if you have curly hair like mine, doing a lot of long strokes is probably not the best idea because you're going to run into knots or you're going to stress it out too much. Whereas your hair that's straight, long, long strokes is completely fine. The way it reassures itself is that it has a closed feedback loop control system. What that means is that from the sensor input, it's reanalyzing its process and going, hmm, it seems like we were a little bit too stiff here. We're getting a little resistance. So let's go lighter on the brush and maybe let's change direction and how how long we're doing the strokes. Okay. So they're using this closed loop feedback system that tells them, you know, this is good. This is too much. This Mm -hmm. is too light. Um, I mean... When you say like you're encountering resistance, that's like a pretty clinical term. Resistance means like they're yanking your hair out, right? Yes. So have they like tested this on humans yet? How are they going to like translate 
what they found in like a relationship between force and how much that hurts. Cause like force is pain when you're brushing. Yes. Your so that, that that's a great question. And so far they've only tested on wigs, but one of the things they want to address is pain because like you're saying, the last thing you want to do is yank on someone's hair. The thing about pain though, is that it's not objective. It's not one scale that like everyone is like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel too. What might feel like a two for you might feel like an eight for me. Okay. So pain is subjective and they have to do human trials to really fine tune that system, which they haven't done yet. They hope okay. to do it soon though. Well, it works really well on wigs. Um, hopefully it continues to work well with humans. And I, I like this specific application of robotics, which people call cobotics mm-hmm. actually, um, collaborative robots to tick up some of the repetitive tasks. Um, that's one of the most promising applications of automation and technology as I see, because if you're a nurse and you don't have to spend, what'd you say, up to 40% of your time combing people's hair, you can focus on providing really personalized care and interacting with all the patients because you're not spending all your time brushing. Exactly. And the, the automation effort isn't replacing the nurse. It is helping the nurse. It yeah. Allowing them to do what they do exactly. best. So that's awesome. Yeah. I'm a huge fan too. Well, we've been talking about electronics, but let's dig into where they get their power, and that's from batteries. So this third and final article we're going to be talking about today is about anode-free batteries, and this is from Professor Penn Bai um, out of Washington University in St. Louis. Um, what Penn Bai's team have been talking about is removing about half of the geometry from a battery. But okay. first, before we do that, let's dive into what batteries are and what the problem is anyway. So we've got batteries in all of our electronics. Most of these are lithium-ion batteries, mm-hmm. um, and they've worked great for decades. But it's about 25% of the cost of all electronics, your phone, your laptop, whatever electronic your device you're using that has a battery, about a quarter of that cost is a lithium-ion battery. That cost is expected to increase, and also the environmental impact is supposed to get worse as we mine for more in lithium and we basically run out of it on Earth. Yep. So they want to look towards other alternatives. And one of these alternatives is an anode-free sodium battery. Uh, so so it's uh, just a quick pause. Sorry. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm, I'm following you so far. Uh, you talked about anode-free. So that's helping you save space. And then the yeah. sodium replacing lithium is cheaper and more abundant, right? Exactly. Okay, cool. Got it. Yeah. You're, you're, you're right there with me. So anode-free allows them to have a much more compact battery. It's lower cost, basically because in every lithium-ion battery, there's two electrodes, an anode and a cathode. They can basically remove half of that by making it anode-free. So that's one of the promising areas. Using sodium is basically you can replace lithium one-for-one energy density-wise, but it's a lot cheaper because it's more abundant in the environment. So sounds like the silver bullet so far. You got me sold, honestly. Why haven't they used it so far? And basically the issue is that these anode-free batteries have a short lifespan. They've had instability in the past with producing consistent power. And then the sodium batteries are challenging because they grow these things called dendrites, which are like fingers that grow in the electrodes and prevent charge from being transferred well, efficiently. We talked about dendrites. We, we talked about them. Again, a lot of throwbacks on this episode. Uh, I think it was like episode three. Yeah. We talked about how researchers at Columbia were introducing additives to their electrolytes so that dendrites weren't going to form anymore for lithium ion batteries. And, you know, for our listeners, a little bit of a recap, you have dendrites form, they're unstable. That's what was leading to the Samsung phones basically blowing up or Tesla's catching on fire and things like that. No good when you have dendrites forming. No good. So they want to diagnose this. And what they discovered 
is that dendrites typically form during charging or discharging okay. in these in these batteries, which makes sense because that's when the ions are moving around. But there's no real way to analyze things while the charge is being transferred. So, so far, batteries have really only been tested by cutting them open when they're either charged up or they're completely discharged, but not watching while it happens. So what this team did was they made a clear battery so they could watch it while it was charging and while okay. it was discharging and watch these metal metal formations build and diagnose it. And basically what they found out is there's this thing that they originally thought was a parameter and they actually found out it was the main variable causing the issue. And it's the water content in the electrolyte of the battery. Did so did, did no one ever like look at the water content? Is it was it just not important before until now? Well, people have always reported the water content and their electrolytes, but they never thought that it was like the key cause for this dendrite formation. Okay. But by being able to watch um, when it was charging and discharging, and then changing a lot of the other parameters, they noticed that the water content was actually the one that affected the dendrite formation the most. See, this is one of those interesting things, Dan. I know you talk a lot about first principles. Like going back yeah. to the foundation of what you know for sure and what you don't, you're not actually completely sure about. And then that's where real innovation tends to happen. This is a great example yeah. of that. Exactly. Water don't, content. Don't, don't accept any dogma. Don't accept yeah. any assumptions. You go back to the, you know, the, the fundamental principles of what everything is based on and tear everything apart and build it back up. Um, this like is a it. great example of that. And they found that the key cause of this dendrite formation, at least in sodium batteries, is the water content. So they found out when they brought the water content below 10 parts per million, which means that there's very, very, very little water in the electrolyte, the batteries performed stably. So, you know, this half geometry battery, so it's a lot more compact. Instead of these dendrites forming, it's just a thin, smooth film that's forming on, you know, this copper film that they have on the other side of the battery. So they've got a cathode, a copper film, smooth metal formation on this copper film. Gotcha. And then when it discharges, smooth metal film, they rim the deposits remove and the ions transfer back so basically it seems like removing the water content was the key to getting these batteries to work all right so i'm gonna hit you with the million dollar question why why isn't this like a thing now why aren't we using it today yeah i'm i this is something i actually had to dig into the research to figure out because it seems great it's more compact same energy density as lithium ion okay seems to work great but the caveat is so far it's only worked for them in making like really really small battery cells um, and the reason why is because with this copper film where the metal's depositing and then being removed from, they say when you want to use more charge, which means you need more metal to deposit on this copper film, it's been cracking. So they want to study ah. this more, find out what the right viscosity of the electrolyte should be, find out what the right concentration of all the ingredients should be. Basically, this is a good first step in the right direction. And it's the first demonstration of using an anode-free sodium battery that is just as compact and has the same energy density as a lithium ion. So it's a huge first step, but we're not quite there yet in terms of making, you know, large batteries that can transfer as much power as the ones that we use today. You know, and it wouldn't be a next bite episode if I didn't bring up secret sauce. So I guess the secret sauce they're going to be uh, cooking up is how to scale this battery moving exactly. forward. Exactly. Right? So it works in small scale. They want to make it larger moving forward. Sounds good to me. This is the best part. We get to end the episode. We get to thank you guys for listening to us. It's been a blast. We've covered, what, 48 topics so far? Kind of crazy yeah. to think about it. But we want to keep doing this, and we have a favor to ask, and that is to just go on the podcast app for like five seconds and write a one-line review. Tell us how you feel about the podcast. Tell us if you love it. Tell us if you hate it. 
anything. We just want to hear from you. And you can see it. You can see the link on our Instagram bio, right? Yeah. I think you're going to see it on our Twitter, but we'll put it everywhere. You can't really All our it. social media bios. Yeah. It's going to be in the show notes. A link to Apple Podcasts. Just click it. Leave a one-line review for us. It's the best way you can help us grow. Like the number one way. That's all we're asking. I think, yeah. That's Let's it. wrap it up there. Thanks, folks. Thank you, everyone. That's all for today. The Next Bite Podcast is produced by Weevolver. And to learn more about the topics we discussed today, visit Weevolver.com. If you enjoy this episode, please review and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of your favorite platforms. I'm Forbode. And I'm Daniel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.